In our gospel today, Jesus is evidently frustrated with a man whom he addresses directly as man. In the ancient Near East, uh, this was a pretty rough way to address a person. Kenneth Bailey, who taught Middle Eastern uh, studies in the New Testament over in Jerusalem for many, many years, he, he confirmed as much. This, this is a rough way to, to, to address this man. Um, Jesus did have some other options, including the very common address, which he used, friend. Even uh, the very, I would say, almost shocking way in which he responded to Judas when Judas came with soldiers to betray him. Jesus says, I, unironically, he's a friend, do what you came to do. But from Jesus, this guy in Luke 12 got man. It's pretty rare uh, in the Gospels to see Jesus respond to an individual this way. We do see him angry enough about religious corruption to sling tables around the temple courts. More than once, he gets verbally exasperated with his disciples for their redundant lack of faith. And of course, he doesn't mince words in Luke's Sermon on the Plain when he pronounces woes on those who are responsible for various kinds of injustice. But still, you know, we hear Jesus described as meek and mild. And I'll come halfway on that. Uh, I think Jesus was the definition of meekness. Um, but we often round his edges, so to speak, as though he was kind of a human marshmallow robot who's kind of exempt from the often gritty texture and pointy edges of interpersonal life. Honestly, I don't know how mild as a descriptor actually applies to people, and it's not a descriptor you find in the Bible, not for Jesus. I don't find it anywhere. I do know how mild applies to salsa, um, but I don't think Jesus was the human equivalent of mild salsa. Maybe we could blame Charles Wesley, you're right, we could just blame a dead guy. He wrote a hymn that says, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child, pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee, which is, is a nice sentiment, right? You also have the carol Silent Night who calls the holy infant Jesus so tender and right, mild. Then again, away in a manger also tells us no crying he makes. So Jesus was so mild as, a, as an infant that he didn't even cry, which is just weird. But we do know, of course, that Jesus was our exemplar of deep gentleness. Maybe that's what we might, wanna, might mean by mild, but I don't think it's all that helpful. He was an exemplar of deep gentleness, inviting little children to his side, graciously guarding the dignity of this adulterous woman who was about to be stoned. Jesus befriended the lonely and alienated social leper, Zacchaeus. So we know he was compassionate and sensitive to human suffering and need. Examples of his meekness and kindness abound. But when we say he was mild, it could be problematic in the sense that what we, the Jesus we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he was very direct as well. He had no problem with the tension between grace and truth like two feet on which to firmly balance his ministry of salvation. He had no problem healing someone in one moment and then telling them to stop sinning in the next moment. Jesus just wasn't, if you think about it, Jesus just wasn't seeking the approval of anyone but the Father. Not that he wasn't pulled on by that desire, but he was only seeking the approval of the Father. Imagine that that, you know, living a life like that. So I think that this made him way better at authentic self-giving love, as complicated as it can be. He just didn't have and respond to this, the pressures of, of approval that we feel. 
he loved well. Now, why might Jesus be so bothered then by this seemingly simple request from this man to settle a family dispute, which teachers, a.k.a. rabbis, they often did this kind of thing in their communities. A quick background on the situation that was helpful. Um, and the background would be that here's apparently a father who has who's died without an oral or written will. And this man in front of Jesus is clearly not the eldest son. And so he's... Uh, He's beholden to the law of the land by which the eldest son has become the executor of the dead man's uh, estate. And there's apparently some reason that this older brother that he has a gripe with has not given him, the younger, what he feels he's due. So there's a division. And this man wants Jesus to wade into this division. So the man also has his own ideas of a just outcome, right? Simply, he, he wants Jesus to simply pick his side, to give him what he wants in this moment. Never mind what complexities might exist beyond his own interpretation of justice. He's just saying, teacher, ratify my claim on reality. This is how it's working. This is what I want. Jesus, just get behind my agenda. So you see why, uh, at a deeper level, um, this is a problem for Jesus, Jesus, whose ministry is certainly not to reinforce divisions over land and money, but to unite people in something far bigger, something far better. Jesus sees behind the curtain, so to speak, of this man's cause, rooted in a kind of self-interest, self-aggrandizement, and his own interpretation of reality. And at the very least, he suspects that the man is under the sway of materialism, covetousness. And so... He's actually happy to put Jesus under that sway as well because that's often what a mindset of more can do, of covetousness, which we'll define a little more clearly in a moment. It can obscure and deceive and control. It can reduce and entitle, which is why elsewhere Jesus actually personifies wealth as a potential object of servitude, an idol he calls mammon. Jesus talked about money 20 times more than any other single topic. Think of a topic you think would be important and was clear in Jesus' teaching and in, in the, the moral vision of the, uh, of, of the gospel and all of this, and still Jesus talked about money 20 times more than that one. And I suppose it's because nothing else has more power over our hearts and over the cultures we make with these hearts. And I think if you just survey human history, it makes it plain. So after his exchange with this man, Jesus then turns to the crowd and he says in verse 15, you take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. Now, a couple of important details here in the language, right? First, the Greek word for covetousness is pleonexia. And it's not as simple as just wanting what someone else has, like that you covet you know, your, your neighbor's wife in Old Testament terms, um, or that you covet the house that they have, but that you just simply are wanting or expecting more than you have when you have enough. And so secondly, second important detail is that when Jesus warns them uh, to take care and be on their guard, he's actually presenting a word picture, you know, of someone staring like fixed upon, waiting for danger or a problem to arrive, fixed on a, a horizon in the direction from which an enemy is likely to come. Imagine them in a watchtower looking at that horizon, paying attention to that, being on their guard. And in a sense, 
Jesus is, uh, is saying, instead of constantly looking for more, we need to be looking out for the problems of looking for more. And by extension, we need to be looking out for the problems of getting more. Because what we want, that more, is significant and serious in our hearts. It's a significant potential problem if it's so important for Jesus to talk about so often. And so then, Jesus tells this story about a landowner who has become exponentially wealthy. His land is producing more than he can use in one season or, or maybe many seasons. He has what farmers call a bumper crop or many bumper crops. And so it's not a bad thing. It's certainly not a bad thing. Of course it's not. Now, he'll need a place to put this abundance. And the solution, looking at it at face value, is relatively simple. Just build bigger barns for this bigger yield. It sounds like good business, and by all accounts, it is good business. But then what happens? The story takes a turn. The problem isn't that this man is preparing for the uncertainty of the future, that he's keeping his bumper crops as insurance for himself and his community against famine or pestilence or flood or war and so on, all the things that were so common then and even remain significant problems now and they're existing in our world right now somewhere. All of these things are affecting the future picture of resource and um, you know, of, of, of people having what they need. But the problem is, really, it's all about him. There's no one else in the picture until, of course, he faces his end. There's no one else in the picture. So he talks to his own soul, which is how Jesus creatively reveals the interior of his heart. It's how he reveals his real motives and his real desires, his real agenda. The man celebrates with himself that his own future is secure for many years, and, and not just secure as in a future in which he can avoid undue hardship. His fresh abundance is now going to allow him to relax, man. Relax and, and, and party and enjoy himself. No worries for him, only pleasure at his leisure. And so the Greek here for be merry, you know, eat, drink, be merry, or eat, drink, uh, rejoice. This is euphreno. Literally, it's a word picture as well that you can kind of relax your center, relax literally the diaphragm. Imagine a great sigh of relief. And the root word within that diaphragm is fron. Remember that for a minute. We're going to come back to it. There will be two glaring problems uh, for, for Jesus' immediate audience as they hear about what this man is doing. There's, there, obviously, there's no generosity and there's no gratitude as a response to, uh, to this great blessing he's experienced. The man is going to constrict his wealth, his, the, the, all this providence, the result of this providence to his own benefit without any consideration of others. And, and by doing so, he's ignoring the Jewish norm of integrated community and shared destiny which the law was supposed to reinforce. That's not, not to say that it always happened perfectly, and certainly you had, you know, this story is only relevant because you had the rich exploiting the poor. This happened throughout Israel's history, but they knew, basically his listeners knew, that this guy is off the rails. He doesn't consult with others as to wise responsibility with God's clear providence. So, right, he's, um, 
he's, he's not thinking about this in terms of generosity and, and responsibility. And so he also, second sort of glaring problem, is that he gives no active thanks to God for this clear providence, which would have come in the form of some kind of gift or, or at the temple or a synagogue. It would have come in the form of an offering of, of first fruits, a recognition of this blessing um, toward the one from whom it came. Where did his wealth come from? It doesn't matter, apparently. What's his, its potential plan for greater good? It doesn't matter. He has more, and so he has a plan based in his own idea of what's right and what's good in these circumstances. Let's call it his working version of justice. Um, and just like the man, sort of rewinding a little bit, like the man who presumed upon Jesus to ratify his perspective on the inheritance, this fictional man, this, this man in the parable, presumed upon the future and thus upon God. To do what? To ratify his self-centered perspective, his agenda, and what he thought was right. So the greater problem beneath the presenting problem of covetousness is that without being on our guard, we can begin to think our way of seeing things, including our prosperity or our definition of happiness, that that is the way of seeing things. That's the problem beneath the problem that Jesus sees in this younger son seeking for his uh, older brother to, dis- to split the inheritance and to pull Jesus into this conflict. Looking through the lens of our definitions of happiness, uh, we can begin to presume upon the future and upon God as though we too, like these two characters, that we, we, we can see all and we can know all and what we really need is just for God to see things our way. And that often informs the way we, not only the way we think, the way we do community, the way we pray. So this is what makes the man or any man a fool. An aphron in the Greek. Thinking this way about both the future and about his own plan. And then, of course, what it omits. He's an aphron in the Greek. Remember the word phron? And so literally, this is a man with no diaphragm, no center to expand. A man who cannot expect real relief. So if you think about that expanding diaphragm, that being able to, to just breathe out, be able to be uh, relieved and to enjoy life, so to speak, to rejoice. This is a man who cannot expect that because of how he's pursuing it. It's interesting, isn't it? That's what makes him a fool. Everything about him lacks the capacity for the very thing he desires or thinks is coming to him. The curtain of his pride in this, in this parable uh, is pulled back to reveal his vulnerability. You fool. And so the soul, this life on loan, honestly, which he thought belonged solely to him, that debt is being called in. He was indebted. He wasn't just free with all of his bounty to to make whatever sort of life that he chose. He was accountable, and in fact, his life on loan is being called in. There are many ways that we might define foolishness. Um, But if we want to define how a fool thinks, we might say that a fool is someone who confuses an excuse with a reason. Ashley's grandfather, my wife's grandfather, used to say, an excuse is just the skin of a reason stretched over a lie. Let me explain how I think this applies to this example of foolishness. 
In this case, the man's prosperity was an excuse to build his own pleasure kingdom. But he had no justifiable reason to do such a thing if he had one shred of wisdom and a broader perspective on the power of wealth for good. And so to Jesus' point, conversely, the power of wealth to deceive. His truth, this man's truth, the fool's truth, his narrow and self-justifying version of reality that originated in himself, it's a lie. And he's stretched this excuse of his own prosperity and, and rejoicing and all of that over that lie and call it a reason. Well, look, this is how it should work and how it is. He believed this lie and he based his whole life on it. So what's the contrast to this? What, what, how might one respond in, in a way that doesn't tap into one of these many, many forms of covetousness that draw us in even subtly into um, a preoccupation, if not an actual relationship with mammon. A wise steward of wealth and of his own soul doesn't assume tomorrow is, in, is uh, inevitable. That's a great starting point, that it's inevitable for any reason. Anything that we have within ourselves. A wise steward actually sees also the great benefit of, of, of what he has now being a, a resource to dignify others now through compassion and through esteeming others and their efforts, through uh, participating with them in generosity, cooperation, not just isolating it to one's own aggrandizement, right? A wise steward knows this too, that his soul benefits from building relationships and connections with other people, a network of mutuality and care. And Jesus speaks to this. It's exactly what Jesus affirms that rich people who've experienced all sorts of providence, whether it's the family they grew, grew up in or they just were, worked very, very hard, but also had just found themselves in the right situation to succeed. We know that success doesn't just sort of uh, happen either by just working hard or it doesn't just happen because you're lucky. Uh, it happens very often by a confluence of, very, of, of factors that are we would call in the church a blessing. So Jesus affirms rich people should use their wealth in a way to, to build relationships and connections. It's relational capital. We should leverage it to build community, and it will make us, it will make you a better person, and it will make the world a better place. It will do eternal things in our temporal lives. If you dig into what Jesus is saying in Luke 16, it has an eternality to it. That's what we want from our resources. Commenting on this parable, St. Ambrose of Milan, who was the fourth century doctor of the church, uh, he was also a hymn writer, maybe better than Charles Wesley, maybe worse, I don't know, not for me to say. But he said this about this parable, the things that we cannot take away with us are not ours. Only our compassion follows us. St. Augustine was his student, and he you know, uh, responded to this parable saying, more pointedly, saying, the rich fool did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storehouses than his new barns. Not only for their benefit, and, and this is not Augustine, this is me, but think about it, not only for their benefit, but also for his, laying up treasures, being rich toward God. So Jesus concludes the story uh, on that point by indirectly suggesting there's one surefire way to know whether or not that covetousness or one of these many expressions of covetousness has us. There's really 
you know, one way to know if the enemy that we should be watching for has come over the horizon while we were focused on our own benefits. It really is the question of whether or not the kingdom of God has anything to do with our material prosperity and our resources. Does it have anything to do with our plans? Or is it even a sort of an isolated part of our lives? You know, our prosperity is isolated from who we are, our souls, who we are in the Spirit. Or to put it in Jesus' terms, whether or not we're also being rich toward God. And I actually think the better translation here is gathering riches for God. Is this part of our plan? Reasonable to ask, well, what does that look like? How might I gather riches for God? I think it's just safe to say that when we are gathering riches for God, uh, what lies under that is, is, is an ethic where we re- we're responding to the past with tangible gratitude. So we recognize and, and give and respond because we know that um, we have received. So we respond to the past with tangible gratitude while we sow into the future with tangible generosity. When we are gathering riches for God, we are confronting the danger of wealth and self-interest not by seeking or having less, but actually by seeking a different kind of more, a different kind of prosperity, a greater abundance for greater things. These are historically expressed in, the, in generously sharing with those in need you know, with the poor or others who are just in a station that is more challenging than us, and also contributing generously to the needs of the community, the advancement of the community that Jesus established, which is a community that advances this way of thinking about resources and about opportunity and about mammon and about the dangers of mammon and also about the way in which we do share life together, and that the world is affected for the good by the way we use what we have. The church uniquely, in giving to the church, we are uniquely advancing this message, this holistic message, not only holiness, but healthfulness in the world. And it's worth saying at this point, friends, you know, the burden of proof to justify this kind of generosity to others and to the church, that's actually not on the church Uh, to make a a new or compelling case. And I'm always open and willing to talk about giving and why we give. And there's a page on our website that that says why give. But the truth is the burden is actually on anyone in our day who's decided that a deep and very broad practice preserved from the Jewish tradition, which was expanded in the church from day one, that this somehow does not apply to me or to us. In Luke 21, Jesus marveled at, he valorized an extremely poor woman who quietly gave two copper coins at the temple, trusting the Lord with her future, giving, as Jesus said, all she had to live on. She was breaking the power of scarcity and fear while herself actually participating in the dignity of God's work, in resourcing God's work. This tells us that that giving to the spiritual advance of God's kingdom and faith is for everyone. The so-called haves and have-nots. And it's, it's good and it's right for everyone. For every soul. In fact, it's the way the kingdom works. For everyone. Generosity and sacrificial giving is a kind of personal soul care that, that expands our ability to trust in God 
and to feel the power of compassion enriching our experience of life as it enriches life itself beyond us. Now, you might be hearing all this and you might be thinking about right now about all the stress you're carrying in terms of money and the economy. And no doubt some of us are wringing our hands right now about the state of the economy. You might actually be, some of us sitting here today might actually be worrying about what you will eat and what you will wear as Jesus continues in our gospel teaching his disciples and the crowd how to think about this because most of them didn't have any sort of inheritance to, be, to even begin to think about uh, sharing. So you might be worrying about these things, about inflation or job insecurity or both, rising interest rates, all the things that are affecting us, the price of gas, right? And, and sure, some of us are shrugging our shoulders right now, um, chances are, because the truth is maybe some of you have just not even felt a speed bump right now. And uh, that's in some ways a blessing. And then the rest of us might be somewhere in between this kind of fear and being greatly affected and others who are just going, well, it hasn't really hit me yet and I hope it, it doesn't. So the truth is, though, wherever you land on that spectrum, what Jesus wants all of us to know is that what we believe about the character of God, what we believe about the future, whether we're rich or poor, this can change the way we live, can and should change the way we live in the present. And it changes the way we see ourselves as souls that belong to God, accountable to God, but also activated, animated, empowered by God for the good in the world. Covetousness and scarcity and short-sightedness, these are not a problem of the rich or the poor. They're the problem of people, all of us who still feel naked and exposed. In one way or another, consciously or unconsciously, we're trying to compensate for that insecurity with short-sighted plans, or maybe we're shuddering with fear about having enough for tomorrow. We feel naked and exposed, and this is the effect of the curse and the effect of our distance from God, the, the distance to which God himself has closed in his son, Jesus. As people who are rich toward God, friends, we can't solve the problems of the whole world. Problems of poverty and opulence and wealth disparity and all that. We, but, but the truth is, and of course our, our news cycle always wants to put the, the, the whole mass, the whole weight of the world's problems on us, and we feel like we can't do anything about all that, and then we question whether or not we can do anything here. But we can't buy that lie. The truth is we can help solve the problems of our world, our community, in the way Jesus taught us. And it begins with living together in that mindset as a community where scarcity in our midst, whatever it happens to be, lack, need, you know, these are met with provision. Provisions God has given us. And we meet them in the name of God, where, you know, where we live together as a community whose wealth builds bigger people not bigger barns. In the end, the church, friends, is what God is doing in the world. We are the body of Christ for the life of the world. We are beating back the forces of individualism and self-aggrandizement and um, covetousness that so easily hold hostage our imaginations and our bank accounts and our futures and our souls. And as the church, we live doing this, beating back these forces in this peculiar way until one day it is the way of the whole world. 
when the inheritance of God that He has promised is spread equally and abundantly to all His children and what God has in store for us becomes fully ours. And there are no tears and there is no fear about these things. So I close with this from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He wrote this, he said, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace of giving also. Now, background is that he is collecting from the Corinthians an offering to take to the Jerusalem church, which is suffering mightily and has great need. He's already collected from the Macedonians, and he set them up as an example of generosity out of abject poverty they gave, and it was a joy to them. And so he says, I say this not as a command. It's continuing in, um, in, in what Paul says. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. For you know... And this is what they share. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I mean, full circle. This is indeed the quintessential definition of meekness, of giving himself, giving all his riches to those who are in need. That's us. It is the definition of meekness. But friends, that is anything but mild. It's radical. It's powerful. And this is the way in which Jesus calls us friends, saving us from the poverty of the foolish desires and plans that we might ask Him to ratify. And instead, He gives us soul-deep, soul-saving life to the full. It's in the riches of His love for us that he does want us to rest, to make merry, to relax our diaphragm, so to speak, to find our center in him and to know that our souls belong to him along with everything else. It's in these riches of his self-giving love that he says again to us today, eat, drink, and be merry, rejoice. This is my very life given for you. And this is where all our plans begin and end. Do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to trust in you with all that we have and all that we don't have. Help us to know that what you care above, uh, about above all things, though you do care about what we, uh, how we will be clothed and what we will eat, what you do care about is our souls that we find our great um, sense of self, and we find all of our plans and what motivates and animates us, how we feel and what we do, we find that in you. We thank you, Lord, that one day we will give account for the lives we've lived. And we thank you that you promise a reward for that. And we thank you that wherever there is a gap, that you have provided for that in the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.